path is not necessarily preordained and you learn things along the way and you're wise to respond to them so don't get so stuck in what you said originally no one's holding you to it except yourself so uh, if you can make that negotiation with yourself about what you really enjoy and what opportunities pop up for you um, it makes it a little more interesting and you can go where your heart goes Hello and welcome to Agnes Scott College's podcast, Journeys to Leadership, where we explore the paths of inspiring women leaders from around the globe. I'm Leo Kadiazak, president of Agnes Scott and the host of this podcast. I hope that our guest stories not only encourage you, our listeners and leaders of today and tomorrow, but they also inspire you as you take the next steps in your own journey. Today's guest began her career as reporter for WAMU, the NPR affiliate in Washington, D.C. She graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Yale University and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She served as the acting director of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. In March 2019, she assumed the role as the president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. She is a human rights advocate with expertise in genocide and atrocity prevention. She's an activist, philanthropist, and is passionate about telling the story and sharing the values of civil and human rights with people all over the world. Please join me in welcoming Jill Savitt, president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Hello, Jill. Hi. Welcome to Journeys to Leadership. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, we're delighted. As you know, on Journeys to Leadership, we know that leadership doesn't just happen. It's a journey. During our time together today, we want to explore your journey. The ups, the downs, the surprises, all of it. Well, as much as we can fit into this segment. So let's jump right in. Where did you grow up and how did that influence you as a leader? I grew up uh, until the age of 10 in New Jersey in a town called Ramsey. And then I moved at age 10. I was in going into the fourth grade to Miami. And then from then on, I was in Miami. In New Jersey, when I was, so this is now a little girl, um, I can now trace back where I am today to some very particular things that happened there. The most probably telling for this purpose is there was a little league in town that my older and younger brother both played in. And I was expected to come and watch them play and cheer from the bleachers with my parents, but there was no league that girls could play in. And this upset me very much because I wasn't necessarily a fabulous athlete, but I didn't just want to cheer on the boys. And so um, I told my parents that this was very upsetting to me, and I petitioned the league to allow girls into the league. Now, how old were you again when you were petitioning the league? <laughs> Ten. Ten. I love that. <laughs> so uh, I actually have an article that hangs on my wall. Uh, it's I wrote a letter to the editor of the local newspaper, the Ramsey Reporter, and I said, you know, this really isn't fair. So I, I got on the team and then I found that the boys were di discriminating against me or I didn't know that word then. They were being mean. 
like at the end of the game when you're supposed to shake hands with the other team, some of the boys would spit on their hand before shaking mine. Oh, my God. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And they would How did you cope with that? Well, as a little girl. You know, I I things like that I I developed a real passionate dislike of bullies in any form, of people who think they can pick on other people because no one will defend them. And these boys, they would also yell out to the outfield where I played, uh, "Oh, a girl polluted." Yeah. So they were not very kind, but my team was terrific. My team stood up for me, which was a real lesson in where you find other allies and when you join a community, how that community can hang together. And I think that's a key part of advocacy that I have taken with me for the rest of my life. Um, and so that was a really important lesson for me. I wrote an editor, a letter to the editor of the local paper. They sent a reporter out and did a story. And the headline of the story was, tell the boys we're equal to them, girls in the little league. I love it. So you were an activist at age 10. Yes. Did you believe then you were then going to have a career in activism or what was the path after that? So I really thought I would be a reporter, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a journalist um, more than anything. So I, throughout my schooling, I was the editor of the middle school paper. I was the editor of the high school paper. I was the editor of my college paper. And I was always a reporter. All my summer jobs were in reporting, and that was, it, it is a form of not activism necessarily, but truth-telling and holding people in power to account, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I thought that was going to be my path, but as you know, as everyone now knows, your path is not necessarily preordained, and you learn things along the way, and you're wise to respond to them. So don't get so stuck in what you said originally. No one's holding you to it except yourself. So uh, if you can make that negotiation with yourself about what you really enjoy and what opportunities pop up for you, um, it makes it a little more interesting, and you can go where your heart goes. Well. Clearly, you began on one path, you changed. Did you have influences in your life? Perhaps it was those early journalists who covered you at age 10. So who had an influence in your life? I mean, so many people. I am so, I am very grateful to the, you know, my parents who instilled in me this idea that if you work hard and you follow your passion, uh, you know, you'll succeed. Um, editors along the way really took a, an interest to me, in me and helped me develop those skills. When I switched over to advocacy, it was because of a lesson I learned as a reporter, which was that people who I tended to personally agree with were not as good at getting information to me as people who I tended not to agree with. And I found that, now this is before the internet, <laughs> and this is before email. Um, and it, if you wanted to get some facts about a particular issue, you relied on people calling you back and getting you information that you could quickly assimilate and put into your reporting. And like as not, the NGOs that I contacted who I tended to agree with did not get me that information in ways that I could use it. And those who I tended to disagree with personally, I was trying, was trying to be as fair as possible in my reporting. And so I found that there was this industry that had popped up about communication and and advocacy strategies for NGOs, non-governmental organizations, that uh, took the skills of reporting and 
being a media person into advocacy. And so that's when I jumped ship. And for instance, the first campaign that I ran as an advocate was something called Take Our Daughters to Work Day, which was, I don't know if students or, or just graduated today would know it, but it was, it was what we call a Trojan horse campaign that tried to look at issues of women in the workplace through the eyes of their daughter. We did this survey research that showed that women weren't gonna advocate for themselves, but they would advocate on behalf of their daughters and so would dads. And so we, we created this program where girls were brought into the workplace to see all the things that women had achieved and fathers and mothers equally wanted to bring their daughters to work. And so we organized that. Well, Jill, I have to tell you, I, you know, I admired you before even more now. <laughs> I love that campaign. I remember when it was launched and it was so meaningful for young girls to be able to go to the workplace and experience what was happening at their parents' workplace, both their fathers and their mothers and the workplace. So, you know, this is, this is really exciting. That was great stuff that you were yeah. doing. And, and again, you know, you think about it before the internet. So that was organized by fax machine. No, you couldn't communicate with anybody. And part of our job at the headquarters was to make sure we had girls at NASA, girls in the White House, that every major uh, entity that you'd want to have a girl at, that you wanted the media to cover, was covered that they would have girls, and especially girls that maybe didn't think of themselves as being someone who should be at NASA or who would go to Ma NASA or the White House or other key places where we wanted to show girls, and also point out often the lack of women in those spaces in the media coverage that we tried to generate. So it was both the day itself, but it was also an advocacy campaign about some bigger issues about women and work and um, women's op opportunities to succeed, especially in certain sectors. It's very interesting you made the comment about the fact that people who that you agreed with wouldn't necessarily get back to you or frankly sometimes wouldn't advocate for themselves. What advice would you give to people today with respect to that, especially as they're trying, they have a very important message and they're trying to get it across? So. I think part of it is um, what I see in terms of advocacy today, in particular with grassroots NGOs and advocates, is the fact that I started as a, a young athlete. I like to win. And I think sometimes I see emotion overwhelming logic in what a goal is and how you can get there and a rigidity about it that you really have to look at the terrain and think about what is a goal that is achievable. Because you can go down swinging and call for something that is unlikely to stick and you don't advance the issue at all. So you have to, you, you could have a long-term goal of where you wanna go, but your milestones really need to be strategic and you need to think about your audience and you need to, so talking about women in the workplace, not as, um, necessarily heartwarming as talking about girls in the workplace as a way to talk about women in the workplace, if you get my meaning. So we started out with a topic that was sure to please and um, get a lot of people engaged to raise some tougher subjects. And so you don't start with women aren't here and women aren't there. You, know, you don't start the conversation there. Roll it back a bit. Think about what your audience needs to know first 
and ways to use, I always say, use honey instead of vinegar, at least at the start. Give people the opportunity to disappoint you <laughs> before you have a real cause to come back with a stronger message. So I, I would say that is, a, is something I've always seen is that some people will start the conversation with the volume turned up to 11, rather than more sussing out where their audience is and maybe taking a little bit of a, a more nuanced approach in the first case. I know many people are going to wonder, how did you learn this? Did you have a mentor that helped you? Was this from life's observations? Was it from your education? How did you learn to take this successful path? Um, well, I would say first off, I ruined many a family Thanksgiving and dinner before I learned this lesson. You don't get the fire in your belly later. You know, if, and if you don't have it pretty early, you might not ever get that bug. So I started out seized of the issues of justice and fairness that I cared about. And I did it wrong so many times before I realized what worked. So I lost a lot. I, I didn't get what I was intending to do. I wasn't accomplishing my goals. And so that made me have to think, well, what would work? This didn't work. So if you do what you've always done, you get what you always got. I have to adapt. And adapting made me see that there was a different path to success. And it relied on bringing in people who were maybe unexpected allies. And unexpected allies can help you access new audiences or see a different perspective that you didn't necessarily consider. And you have to be willing to adapt. And so it took me a while to think that I should just keep banging my head against the same wall before I realized that, okay, that really hurts and I'm not making any progress. Um, and it, I think gentle people along the way told me, maybe you should try this and maybe you should adapt. And I think, you know, there's a certain point in your life where you're not very open to that. You want to try it on your own. You want to, you, you want to be in, uh, you think you know more. And then once you open your eyes and you read, how do people succeed? So there are textbooks about successful campaigns and what people did in them. And I'm talking not about political campaigns where you're backing a candidate. My specialty, my area of focus became issue campaigns where you're trying to achieve a particular result. Usually legislation being passed or legislation being blocked or funds being allocated to something or funds being taken away from something else. Things like that that were actual campaigns that would have an end where you would know at the end it was up or down. You won or you lost. In some of the articles that I've read, you talk about being a Jewish woman in leadership. Is there a special experience that you've had or um, experiences as a Jewish woman in leadership? So when I said about bullies early on, um, my brothers and I took the bus to school and we were the only, there were maybe, I was the only Jewish kid in my class at this elementary school. There were maybe three Jewish kids in my grade, but there were a group of boys who at the back of the bus would throw pennies at the head of me and my brother. They would throw the penny and you would go and pick it up. This is the first time it happened. They would say, oh, a Jew always want the money. They bullied more my older brother than, than me. Um, and that was one of those things about bullies that I 
developed early on that I couldn't stand. So fast forward, there are Jewish values about the law and love. That, that's a key part of Judaism is the combination of law and love. And I think that's what human rights is. It is the combination of those two things. And the tenets of human rights values very much to me, well, they come out of the world's religions, including Judaism, in that they were founded after World War II and enshrined after World War II because of World War II and the Holocaust. And so there is a, a Jewish thread through human rights work. Some of the lawyers who established human rights had lost family in the Holocaust and it was very inflected with those values. So I don't know that I chose it because of that, but I definitely saw how human rights mirrored my religious upbringing. Well, it's clear that your family, your background had a significant influence, often gave you strength toward your path. Did you ever have any doubts? Doubts about yourself or your role or what you should be doing? All the time to this day, including right now. <laughs> you know, if there's a villain in my story, it would be me. The idea, you know, just certain self-perceptions you have along the way about being the perfect this or the perfect that, um, think is self-doubt, imposter syndrome, all of that. I think, I think a lot of people have it. Uh, in my experience, women do it, do a number on themselves more than men do. And it's so limiting um, that I don't know that you can ever expel it, but you can recognize that you're doing it and stop. <laughs> you, can, you can use the cues that it tells you and not be arrogant to keep your humility, but you can recognize that you might be holding back or not pursuing something or apologizing for a viewpoint that you're trying to articulate and know that it's that a tape playing in your head and just turn down the volume on that tape. You mentioned earlier something about emotions and emotions with respect to activism, how sometimes they could get in the way, but the flip side, what you do with respect to the pursuit of civil and human rights is extremely emotional and must be amazingly challenging at times. Yeah, so, I mean, I I chose, before I came to, to run the center, I'd spend the last, I would say, decade before that working on genocide prevention. I, in particular, worked with people who whose families were harmed and who then became advocates themselves. It, it is so inspiring to see people who have lost so much be able to forgive and move on that you can't help but feel optimistic about humanity, human beings, our capacity to heal, and that these people didn't give up. In fact, said, if I give up, the other side's going to win. Can you tell us a little more about civil rights today? Many people think we really haven't made much progress. What do you think? Have we made progress? Are you optimistic about the future? I am enormously optimistic about the future. I think it is always easier to see the bad than to see the good. You know, just read Yelp reviews of a restaurant. You know, people don't always write about the good things, but they're very eager to tell you what's wrong. Um, we had the first African-American president. We have a vice president who is mixed race. We have people of every walk of life in 
many aspects of society, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, all, all different kinds of issues. We're having a discussion about trans people. All of these things is enormous progress. It is true though, we have a, a, a further way to go and we are not even near where we could be or should be. It just means you have to keep working. The, these issues will never be done. We will never have solved these problems because the world is populated by human beings. And th that introduces all the flaws of jealousy, of people who are able to manipulate others with fear, of um, people who even agree not being able to agree on the best way forward. So all of that human condition stuff will forever make us have to continue this negotiation. That negotiation is democracy. That's, that's what it is. That is the project we're all engaged in. What troubles me today in particular is in my lifetime, I'm in my 50s, I have never seen such polarization to the one side and the other with the hollowing out of, of the middle to the extent that we see it now. And I, I would criticize the left and the right on this. There is an orthodoxy on both sides. And if you don't agree with it, you can be excommunicated. And that makes the middle a hard place to be. It makes people not want to participate for fear. But the heart of a liberal democracy is a disagreement and in negotiating that disagreement. And I fear, I really fear for that, that we're losing that ability to disagree agreeably, to have civil discussions about issues on which we disagree. It's one of the aspects that Agnes Scott, we've been focusing on being able to have courageous conversations, bring people together of different views, to be able to sit down and have that conversation, to communicate with one another. Do you think being a woman has any special influence on what you do at the center or why you do it? I do. I, I am now put into situations. I'm a first-time CEO, so I had not done this before, and I now meet people who have that same title. And I do think this is a gross generalization, but as a whole, women and men lead very differently. Um, I feel there's more consensus building, there's more consultation where women are concerned, that maybe even more empathy about the struggles of home life and work life, and extending to people alternative ways of getting things done, because women have done that. They have found ways, you know, maybe they won't work from three to four, but they'll work from nine to 10 at night, you know, that, that they have found ways to achieve all of the things of what true success is. So I'll spend a minute on that. Um, my, my kind of wry line is that men have been kind of conditioned not to have fully successful lives because a fully successful life means that you are an active family member. You are an active community member, as well as being an active worker, that a well-rounded person succeeds or has hobbies, um, cares for those in need. That is a, if you want to live a truly full and meaningful life, you have to do all of those things. And men have been programmed by and large for one ideal of success. And their version of success doesn't include all the things that really make 
being a human being a rich experience. And so on some level, I feel like we need to liberate men to be able to live to their live up to their best selves and have lives that are more fulfilling. I was going to say many men would appreciate that um, for yes. sure. I think I think more and more I have a 21 year old son and he does not have the same kind of received wisdom that men of my generation have about that they should be the primary breadwinner, that they should succeed in a certain way. They are much more open and much more demanding about fairness and what it looks like and how they want to live their lives, quite honestly, which is not get in, dress up and go to an office and sit at a desk and punch out at the end of the day. That That's I think young people today have a very a much more expansive view of what it means to live a full life. Let me turn this around a little bit, though. When you were talking about, you know, men sort of failing because of being able to achieve all those things, but don't you think women are expected to do it all? Well, I, that's why we have to liberate men. We've been putting the pressure on women to live a, live up to a certain standard that I don't necessarily believe is the hallmark of success. If we liberate men to round out the other areas of their lives, it would take the burden off women of working often two jobs, a home job and a work job. Again, it's that what we were talking about at the beginning. I'm framing it up differently. I'm saying let's let's help men live their best life <laughs> rather than it's on it, the onus is on women to hold them up to a unbelievably rigid standard while also doing all these other things. You know, and on, on the leadership front, I do think men related to that don't necessarily see all the nuance often in driving to their goal, like how it affects other people and what the dependencies are. And I think because of women's management skills of negotiating cliques of women, you know, very sensitive to the thoughts and feelings of other women. When you do spend a lot of time in women-focused environments, you become very focused to how does this land with people? What are the other perspectives? How can I tap into something that's more collective because we'll get more accomplished? I'm going to ask you something about you. Um, is there something that surprised you about yourself as you've gone on your journey and you're at the point you are now? Is, as you reflect, is there something that surprises you? Um, I never thought, this is just the first thing that pops to my mind, that I was good with numbers or I think spreadsheets scared me. And I ran a cultural institution during a pandemic where we relied on ticket sales for the vast majority of our budget. And I have 40 employees and we shut down and there was no money coming in. And I had to get my head around really complicated financial situations and reporting and respond um, to, to that problem. And I, I would have not thought that I was able to do that before. So I, I surprised myself that I was actually better at that. I had never given myself enough credit that I could do it. I was just scared of it. So I, I thought that I probably wouldn't be good at it. Well, I'm not surprised at all that you got your hands around it and that you did it um, from everything that you've done in the past. And also you talked about that flexibility or that that growth and, you know, being able to understand 
things in a short period of time. A existential threat also helps. <laughs> yes, we need to, survival is a very important thing. Motiva it's, it's a huge motivator. Absolutely. Well, tell me, would you have advice for young people today or mid-career people? What, what would you tell someone? What do you wish either you knew or what do you want them to know? I think a few things that people sometimes want to get into human rights or get into advocacy and they don't know where to start. Um, and I think we spend a lot of time making lists and to-do lists and checking things off. And you, there is something to the Nike ad, just do it. Just, just start. If you're interested in human rights, well, why? What, what issue interests you? Is it women's rights? Is it girls' education? Is it uh, opposing gun violence? And then find other people who are interested in that too. You could do it on social media. You can do it by going to a meeting. You can read more. You, you will, once you start, the next step will reveal itself. It will, it just will. I know you have to take a little bit of a leap of faith on that, but you know, again, a sports analogy, you will not score if you're sitting on the bench. It is not possible to score if you're sitting on the bench. You have to be on the field. And once you're on the field and playing and in the game, stuff will start to happen. But I think we spend, and I did this myself, I would spend a lot of time planning and making more lists and plans than doing. And so I would, I would encourage people to follow their interests and not just in, in their minds, but follow their interests with their feet and their hands. Roll up your sleeves and just start doing and a path will emerge. Well, Jill, we wanna thank you so much for your advice and for your time today. To our listeners, I hope you are encouraged and inspired. Jill Savitt's journey is one of many that we can't wait to share with you. Thank you for joining us. I also want to thank our producer, Sydney Perry, for making this podcast possible. I am Leo Katie Zach, and this is Journeys to Leadership. Looking for more content? Check out Leading Everywhere, the Agnes Scott College podcast, a show that shares the stories of the campus community students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.